0: Welcome to Lundin Lopate at Large, I'm Lundin Lopate. The weather was extremely dry this past summer, then it became seasonable with intense fall color, and we've had a record warm winter so far with the latest measurable snow ever recorded in New York City weather continues to be a major news story throughout the country, so you might wonder what effect it has had on the plants of those of us in this area who like to grow things. Well, joining us now is one of our favorite regular guests on the show, Pete Murawski, a nursery man and environmentalist, the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And we invite you to call us now with your gardening questions. Our on-air number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Yeah, I'm here. Now, Pete, I- I've I've heard a wide range of theories about why the weather's been so problematical over the past year.
1: That's exactly right, Leonard. And, you know, the problem is we're, uh,
2: we're
0: taking to... some
1: interesting turns in the weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, Leonard, last summer was dry and windy. Uh, last fall was seasonable with beautiful fall color. And this winter has basically been non-existent this year without a winter so far. Hmm. The, the latest, as you said, Leonard, the latest measurable snowfall in Central Park was February 1st. We got a half an inch.
0: When, when I see the uh, the statistics on television... This is not the first time we've had a warm winter, although it's the longest we waited for some snow.
1: It was the warmest January on record. But like you say, if you look out west, along the West Coast, Mm. they had the snowiest, wettest, uh, coldest winter on record in 25 years. And not only that, but the drought in California on the West Coast went away in less than five weeks. So uh, and that's how much rain they had. Uh, and the farmers are uh, clicking their heels and, heels and jumping for joy because we've had, um, uh, you know, they've had water restrictions. And they didn't know how they were going to water their trees, their almond trees and their figs and, and, and all the uh, fruits and vegetables that grow in the valley. And now that
0: this rain hit, uh, they should be fine uh, this spring and summer. But what impact have these extremes had on Our area on people's gardens, the landscape and out in the deep woods this winter. How is the natural world adjusting to these extremes?
1: Weird things are happening as far as like migrating birds. Like last week I was out at the garden center walking wandering around in the in the meadow behind the garden center and I saw a flock of bluebirds come by, which doesn't necessarily come by until April or May. So, you know, the, the migration is a little messed up, you know, the ponds and Waterways are all open, so there's a lot of uh, birds that never even left. A lot of the waterfowl and a lot of the geese stayed put. Um, you know, the the trees uh, and the bulbs are, migrate, are, are are popping up early. You know, there's a lot of crocuses. There's a lot of um, uh, snowdrops coming up now. And they're at least a month early. Magnolias. I mean, you, everywhere you look is just, uh, I mean, I mean, look at today. Today is sunny up here in Pauling and 60 degrees. It's just, you know, this is supposed to be the coldest time of year, but it's not.
0: Well, we're going to have some rain in the city, but what should home gardeners be doing to get ready for spring with this weird weather? Does the mild winter weather provide an opportunity to start doing things like pruning, splitting, transplanting, mulching, planting early?
1: Absolutely, Leonard. And, you know, this is a great time of year because the leaves are all off the trees that you can see the branching structures uh, within the tree. And, uh, you know, I call pruning this time of year an art form. And and the reason why it's an art art form is because you can train your shrubs and trees to grow a certain way. And then when the leaves come out, you know, you walk around your property and and everything just kind of blends together and melds together with 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 all the different textures and stuff. So absolutely, this is one of the best times of year to get out and prune. And 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 do some gardening work. Also, mulching is is a great time of year to mulch uh, if if you haven't done so already. And uh, you know the mulch we recommend at native landscapes is a combination of shredded bark, um, leaf mold, uh, a little bit of chips, and 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 we just spread that out, and it, and it's a slow decomposition process. And if you do it this way, you don't even have to fertilize your plants.
0: Does the weather matter? One for- of the things oh, go ahead. that you
1: want to be careful of though is not to cut down your perennials and ornamental grasses too early you got to remember there's beneficial insects living in those uh uh, hollow stems and they don't hatch and come out until uh april or may so leave those stems and grasses up until then and don't cut them down because uh, a lot of our beneficial insects live within
0: those plants does the weather matter for people who grow things indoors? A lot of our listeners are apartment dwellers, for example. Right. Well,
1: you know, even plants that are indoor plants, you know, have they they sense when spring is coming, that even though the, the temperature or the weather inside of an apartment may not change too much, you know, the lighting gets more, uh, you know, it, it gets more intense and they figure that it's becoming spring and, you know they're about to do their thing and reproduce if necessary you know this is the time of year just before plants grow if they're in a container that you may want to change the container get rid of that sour soil in that container and you know go with something that has a little bit more nutrient value in the container and this is also a great time of year to to start your indoor vegetables your carrots your broccolis your uh your lettuces your spinaches, all those vegetables that are cold hardy can be started inside now and planted in the next month or so outside in the garden.
0: A reminder to our listeners that you can um, call us and ask Pete questions about your gardening. The number here is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. How's the weather affected your business in Dutchess County just off the Appalachian Trail?
1: Well, Leonard, you know, the, uh, the, after the holidays, we tend to switch gears and we go from planters and, and 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 landscapers and building stone walls and 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 stuff like that cuz the ground freezes and we start to get a lot of snow, then we prepare our, our trucks uh, for plowing snow. Uh, the strange thing is this year, um, we haven't had any snow. We had one snowstorm in the beginning of december uh where we plant we plowed a handful of accounts but we haven't really had any snow so what are we still doing we're still out there building stone walls and patios and planting big trees in fact we we just moved last week a 25 30 foot magnolia from one side of the property to the other Hmm. because this is a perfect time to do that type of work if you can trees are dormant uh they don't go into shock when you move them and uh, we do it every year this time of year, as long as, you know, we don't have a foot or two of frost in the ground and there's not two or three foot feet of snow on the ground. You know, very few winters when it's uh, mid-February that we are out doing landscaping work. You know, this we happen to be lucky this time of year, uh, this year, uh, because... Uh, we're really not having much of a winter at all up here. But just remember, the winter's not over yet. We'll probably get it all in one storm <laughs> in the end of February
0: and beginning of March. Have more people been walking the Appalachian Trail this winter because of the milder weather?
1: We've had. We've, we've had a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people who do walk the trail in the wintertime. There's a lot of winter hikers. Uh, I don't know how they sleep at night, but, you know, they, they do their thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of them section hike the trail in the wintertime. And a lot of people are into the trail in the wintertime. I mean, you can see out in the woods a long way. You can see wildlife. It's just a, it's a different perspective uh, of the woods and being out in, in, in the woods and, and enjoying wildlife. Um, I mean, I think about it, we've had such a mild winter. So the bear haven't really been hibernating. You know, the coyote haven't been really denning up, hmm. you know, everything is still running and hunting and, and doing what they do uh, the other three months. Uh, because, this winter uh, it has been so mild
0: and it hasn't it hurt many northern vacation areas that depend on cold and snow to make a living
1: well you know it's funny you say that because you know i'm an avid skier and i'm always checking uh um, ski conditions all through the northeast you know and i'm trying to find the place who's getting all the snow but uh you know a lot of these resorts are having a tough time i mean if you want to ski, snowboard, skate, snowshoe, snowmobile, ice fish, sleigh ride, ice climbing—and that's another thing I want to talk to you about—one, and you want to actually get into ice climbing. Um, you can—you need ice and you need cold weather to do this, you know. So, uh, what am I seeing going on out there? Like, um, you know, uh, Thunder Ridge, the little ski area that's uh, that's in our town. You know, someone would have give the snowmaking guy a, a bonus this year because when it was cold enough. He made snow and he stockpiled the snow, and then when it got really warm, it rained. You know, they, they took the machines and they brought the snow back in, 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 into the um, into the trails, and you know that to me is is, is genius. You know, I mean, you, you, you know, it's just one of those things that you have to do in these fickle uh, northeast winters now to prepare for really warm times of year. I mean, I've heard stories about some ski areas have just given up you know, because uh, they just didn't make snow in time. Their snowmaking wasn't really up to par. And they couldn't hold on to their help, and their help went to other areas to work. So they had to close early. So the motto of this story is, you know, get out there and do what you can, especially if your business depends on winter weather and snow. And if you have the capability of making snow, do it while you can, because uh, that window of opportunity uh, was not very big uh, this winter season so far.
0: You mentioned ice climbing. Is ice climbing popular in this area? I haven't heard much about it.
1: Um, it is over in the the gunks, uh, over in um, the Catskills. You know, over in these areas that have uh, <clears throat> steep ice cliff covered face rock faces. I mean, I you know. I look at this stuff, I can't even watch it. It scares the hell out of me. You know, it's just, you know, these guys are going up with picks and ropes and, and, and trying to go up some of the, you know, uh, most slippery ice um, ice formations that you could find on on cliffs, especially up in the Catskills. But once again, you know, it really didn't get cold enough to harden the ice. And I wouldn't go near those ice forms now because as they melt they just get brittle and they break off And um, you don't want to be, be there climbing that ice sculpture um, when it's melting and, and, and ready to break off
0: my guest today on Leonard Lopate at large is Pete Murawski a nursery man and environmentalist owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York uh, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org When Pete is here, uh, lots of people usually call in with questions about gardening. Um, Our phone number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. What's the native plant initiative in the green industry? You've written to me about that. Well,
1: you know, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a little history behind native plants and, and the green industry. Uh, when I started my business back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, I used to go to growers and ask them if they grew uh, clethra, winterberry holly, uh, uh witch hazel, you know, all these native plants to sustain wildlife. And I remember a lot of these uh, growers telling me that, you know, we don't grow any of that stuff because no one's requesting it. You know, we grow barberry, euronimus, and fitzer juniper. And those were, you know, the generic plants that were grown in a lot of these um, nursery growers. But I would say, you know, since the general public started to get educated, you know, we can thank people like uh, Carolyn Somers and Rick Dark and Douglas Tellamy for their knowledge and writing books on why native plants sustain wildlife in a natural world. And it, it really is a, a great story on, you know, it, not just because you plant the tree, you're not, you know, it, it, it may not be the best tree for the site. You know, there are certain native plants that sustain more wildlife than any other plant. For instance, like white oaks, white oaks feed and house and home. Two hundred and thirty different insects, birds, and animals,
3: huh.
1: and uh, you know, there's just so many things that are you know so wonderful about native plants. They uh, they require less, festi- uh, less pesticides, fertilizers, and water. And uh, you know, one of the things that's going on in my industry right now is you know how much nutritional value is straight species native plants versus cultivated varieties and I know the University of Vermont is doing a lot of studies on that uh, because you know what these native plant gurus want to do is they want to make sure that they're putting out the native plants that have the the, you know the the most nutritional value and, and that you know you're feeding wildlife because a lot of you know there's this, there's this relationship that exists between plants, animals, and insects. And you, and, it, and it doesn't work with exotic species. They just can't digest plants from other continents or other worlds.
0: We have uh, some calls. If you want? Should we speak to some of our listeners? Sure. Again, our reminder, the number is 212-209-2877. Let's go to our first call. BAI, you're on the air. How you doing? This is Wayne. Hi, Wayne. I have uh, a backyard space in
3: Queens, uh, roughly twenty-five by twenty-five, and I want to. This, you know, every time I go back there during the summertime, I get bitten up by a bunch of mosquitoes. I Are mean, there any type of plants I can particularly plant to keep them at bay? And also, I have a little a little garden window that I plant, you know, basil, and I have some um, bay leaves, you know, herbs. You know, and somebody told me that it's better to put those on the outside during the summertime as compared to keeping them in the uh, window all year round. So, well, I'll take my my answer off the air, and thank you. I love your show. Thank
0: oh, thank you,
1: Pete. Yes, um, you know there are plants that will deter a lot of biting insects. You know, the first plant I would go to uh, might be mint. You know, uh, a lot of the insects don't like mint um, and they prefer other plants. Um, uh, Geraniums, uh, you know, they prefer uh, they 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 won't allow a lot of biting insects in 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 and around, uh, you know, the the sitting area. Um, You know, if there's a lot of plants out there, you know, uh, that don't allow a lot of the biting insects to come in and, 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 you know, the, the important thing in the yard is to maybe keep it a little bit clean and, and keep it mulched. And, you know, cause you know, the, the more weeds and, and, and non-native plants you have, uh, the, the better chance you have of uh, uh, just getting all kinds of nasty bees and roaches and, you know, uh, a, a lot of rodents in your yard. But um, yeah, uh, there's, if you go on to the website, native landscaping.net, you can, um, we do have lists of, 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 different types of plants for different locations. And, you know, there are, there is a list that will, um, that you can uh, go in on and, and, and use those plants, um, um more so than others, uh, to keep the insect populations down.
0: Well, one insect population that people loved, was uh, the invasion of the monarch butterflies every year. But hasn't that pretty much disappeared in recent years?
2: Um,
0: It seems to
1: be fluctuating up and down. Uh, In other words, um, you know, two or three years ago, there was a real lack of monarch butterflies making it down to Mexico. And, you know, the theory behind that was a lot of the a lot of the uh, milkweed in the hedgerows was getting, it was getting um, killed by a lot of the um, uh, herbicides that we're using in the Midwest and in the farm country. And, you know, there's been a big push to stay away from a lot of the pesticides because they're really doing a job on our, 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 our native insects. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say where the monarch butterflies are now. I know there's, there's a lot more milkweed out there and, we, well, hopefully, we can sustain the population so that uh, you know they can continue uh, forever and ever. But you know, it's all about the right food and the right location.
0: We're taking calls for Pete Marosky and the number is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Let's take another call. B A I, you're on the air.
2: Good afternoon. Thank you for being there. I love this show because it's so pertinent. Um, I like to grow tomatoes and. Tomatoes love water, and I'm concerned about... I'm in Brooklyn in a community garden. My name is Joan. And, um, you know, well, I'm going to say the dreaded word, chemtrails. You know, the lines in the sky, and they fluff up like a cloud, and they have fallouts. And my neighbors all complain, dust every day, dust. You know, we're being dusted, and these things are supposed to be toxic, some of the fallouts. And so I worry about my tomatoes. Now, I know they say in the winter, you can build over your box. You know, in the community garden, we have boxes, raised boxes. You can build like a hoops over it and put clear uh, vinyl on top of that. And then on rollers, you can roll them out and you can grow in the winter when it's really cold, like some kind of vegetables, lettuce, et cetera. But I'm wondering if I should do that, cover my tomatoes. I'm not so worried about the string beans and the collard greens, but the tomatoes love water. And and then, you know, I like to give them away, too. I don't want to give away toxic tomatoes. I mean, do you think that's possible, that I can protect this soil from toxins that are coming in? I mean, it's not just chemtrails, which are the worst defender, but... You know, there's trucks and things that use diesel. That stuff gets in the air, you know, and it gets in the soil. And I wonder if you have any suggestions about how I can keep my tomatoes. Pete? So that they're yeah. edible. No,
1: I understand what you're saying
2: because, you know,
1: we had this conversation at the garden center not long ago because we're right on Route 22 and we got a lot of truck trucks traffic and car traffic and, you know, a lot of uh, exhaust fumes, Uh, you know, what's it doing to vegetable plants? What's it, you know, and I started asking some questions, you know, to people in the cooperative extension uh, to see if, uh, you know, Cornell cooperative extension, see if they had any uh, information. And, you know, the general gist of that conversation went, um, you know, uh, the wind and rain and sun, play an important role that it, and, and then as it rains, it, it takes a lot of these toxins out of the air and in, in the soil. And then once they get in the soil, believe it or not, a lot of these microbes have gobbled them right up. So it's not the problem you may think it is. Um, and you want to grow your vegetables in your yard. And if you wanted to start them a little bit earlier than later, you can start them and, and build a few what they call cold frames, which are um, which are like uh, kind of underground spaces where you can jumpstart your growing season about a month or two in advance, where you could do all your vegetables and your and your tomatoes um, in this cold frame, and then you know when it's time to put them out in your garden six weeks from now, you know you can give them away, and you know they're in pretty good shape because you know you've kept the cold air. And and any kind of snow and bad weather we're going to get for the rest of the season. But, you know, I I think Mother Nature, the soil and plants have a miraculous way of neutralizing a lot of this stuff. Even insects, there's certain type of insects that take heavy metals out of the soil, um, those little um, uh, armadillo-looking insects. So, you know, uh, I think if you just trust Mother Nature, uh, she'll – She'll do a lot of the cleanup for you.
0: Okay.
2: All right. Now go to, um, what is it, nativeplants.net?
1: Yeah. Nativelandscaping.net.
2: Okay.
0: I'm going to write that down right now.
2: Thank you so
0: much. Pete, you mentioned that native plants have more nutrient value than cultivated varieties or exotic and introduced species. What are some examples? Obviously, tomatoes aren't uh, local plants.
1: Well, yeah, well, there's a big study going on in universities because everybody wants to know, you know, are these cultivated varieties have less nutritional value than straight species plants? And I'll give you an example, Esclepias tuberosa, uh, which is butterfly weed. Now, butterfly weed comes in two colors. It comes in orange flower, and it comes in a yellow flower. Now they did some studies between the nutritional value on the orange flower versus the red flower. And they're the same, which is all good news. So you can plant both yellow and orange, depending on what part, what color palette you want to put in your garden with the Asclepias tuberosa. And you're not taking any nutritional value away from uh, a lot of these insects. You know, that isn't true with a lot of other native plants. Um, I know, um, I know a lot of other native plants, once you start playing with color and leaf uh, texture and leaf colors, they start losing their nutritional value. But to what extent? And I think we're going to find out here in the next year or two, because that's where the studies are headed. And that's uh, where we're going to get some of our uh, very important um, information on these uh, on native plants, um, you know, uh, uh, cultivars versus straight species. But I want to touch a little bit on exotic species too, because if you think about it, you know, we're starting to move plants all around the planet now, and it's creating a lot of problems. You know, the Dutch elm disease, hemlock woolly adelgid, or the ash borer, you know, there's a lot of diseases that are traveling around the planet because we're moving plants and we're moving things around the planet. And, you know, once they get into like the Northeast, you know, you get like the, like the, the elm disease. The, they had no way of, you know, they had no way of defending themselves. There's no the disease natural disease predators. Never, no no natural predators to, to, you know, just like, you know, when the first Europeans came over here and you know, all the Indians got mumps and measles, they, they, they had no natural immunity to that, too. The same thing exists with plants. And because of that, uh, you know, we, we've created an imbalance in the natural world. And not only that, but a lot of our insects can't eat euonymus. A lot of the insects can't eat Norway spruce hmm. because their digestive tract isn't adapted to their needles or leaves or bark or roots. You know, yes, it may come in time, but that may be 2,000 years down the road, and by then <laughs> the, 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 the insects may, you know, may be uh, gone. So, you know, we really got to take a close look at what we're planting in Really plant stuff that's going to sustain our wildlife. That's that's the important thing. It's it's all about healthy choices in our landscape.
0: Our number here is 212-209-2877. <laughs> this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. We'll be taking more calls right after this.
3: My God is all-
0: We're back with Pete Murawski, a nurseryman and environmentalist and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center on Route 22 in Pauling, New York, which is very close to the Appalachian Trail. And we are taking your calls at 212 209 7, 7, let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air.
3: Hi, um, uh, hi, hi, Leonard. Hi, hi, uh, Pete. Um, I have, like, uh, uh, sort of, uh, one or two, uh, brief questions. Um, number one is that, um, I found a woolly bear that was completely black maybe two years ago. And, uh, what does that, um, what does that portend? That's number one. And number two is, like, around, uh, maybe 15 years ago, we moved into this uh, development of maybe, like, it's about 30 houses, and uh, it it used to be a farm. And um, what happens is that, um, like, 15 years ago, like, I I looked on on the driveway, and there's, like, a a migration of, like, earthworms. Like, they're going all over the lawn, and not the lawn, the the driveway. And... Hmm. Like in any any place that was bare, like there there were earthworms, and um they're, they're just crawling along like like uh, a lot of them like maybe hundreds of them oh, if I'm not exaggerating now, what that does that mean and um after that, you know like you in in the last fifteen years um, there there have been no earthworm uh, migration, so uh, i I've always wondered you know what. What does that mean, Pete? And uh, yes. Okay, I'll, I'll just ask that um, those those two questions. Uh, okay, I'm going to turn on the radio because the reception is a little better. So
0: okay. <laughs>
1: okay. All right. So let's talk about the woolly bear caterpillars first. You know, woolly bear caterpillars come out in the fall, and what they say about the woolly bear caterpillars is that. You know, the more brown they have on them, the uh, warmer and milder the winter's going to be. And the more black they have on them, the uh, tougher and, and 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 colder the winter is
0: going to be. So they must now, be tan found, this year.
1: Yeah, they should all be tan this year so far. Um, but he found this uh, woolly bear last year, and if you remember, last winter was a, a little bit uh, more snow than we had this winter. So. Uh, but to find an all black one, um, he must have been up in the Adirondacks or something, you know, because um, around here, it was still a mild winter, relatively speaking. Um, so, uh, you know, that's 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 what happens with the woolly bears there. You know, this year, I've, I've seen a lot of them out there and they seem to be like early in the spring. You know, when you had have, have the fifth graders come and, and take a hike on the Appalachian Trail and talk about, uh, you know, the Native plants, and you know, teaching the kids, you know, about the swamp plants, and you know why plants are dependent on one another. You know, the kids were collecting a lot of uh, woolly bear caterpillars, and they were about 50-50, which made me think that we were going to have an average winter. But so so far, we've all been wrong. It's been very mild. Um, you know, the second question we had, he had with the worms. Um, there is a problem with Asian jumping worms. Uh, it's become an infestation everywhere. And um, you know, you can tell there's a couple ways you can tell if it's the Asian jumping worm. And uh, you know, you can see that it's got, you know, most earthworms have a ring around them somewhere around the center of their body. If that ring on that worm is really white and then you go to touch the worm and it and it just erratically goes crazy, um, you know, that's usually an Asian jumping worm. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you don't, you don't want them on your property because they just devour organic material and you want to try to get rid of them as best you can. You know, what we do is we, you know, we send, we send, tend to get them pretty bad every once in a while from growers. You get a container stock coming in and that particular Canadian stock is loaded with jumping worms and we'll go through the garden center but they'll surface at night or in the morning and we'll, We'll, we'll pick them out of the garden center and we'll flush them down the toilet, or we'll oh. feed them to the uh, to the fish in the pond. Because but, you don't um, want to you know, poison it, them. No, they're, they're not poison. No, you don't want to poison the, the worms. No. Okay. Um, there's there's a mustard slurry you can make to pour on the soil and it brings them to the surface. I mean, there's a lot of. There's a lot of talk about these uh, jumping worms. And, um, you know, the sad part is they're so deeply entrenched in our landscape and woods that it's going to be a tough time getting rid of them. Um, You know, uh, it's, you know, I think I think a lot of the universities and a lot of the cooperative extensions are working on it. But yet we have yet to find a solution for what to do about these things that are um, exploding and increasing in numbers exponentially.
0: Well, let's take another call, okay? We have a number of people sure. calling us. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yeah, hi.
2: Good day. Um, uh, a good day, uh, uh, Leonard and, and Pete. Um, um, My question is a two-part. Um, is there a book on just pruning like an encyclopedia, an unabridged one? And also, is there some type of uh, book or recommendation that um, Pete can give me on the insects that remove heavy metals from the soil? And I'll listen off air.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah once again, um, if, if, you, if you're on the computer, um, you know, you can Google all this stuff, and it pops right up. Um, you, you, there's a lot of books out on pruning, you know. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of classes. I mean, I probably have... Ten books on tree care. I guess you know, she wants to know
0: which one you think is best. Which one do I think is best? Uh-huh. Oh, that's a great – you know,
1: um, off the top of my head, I can't give you well, a one best. Okay. But what I'll do is I'll send you a link of some of the best uh, books out there. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I, I haven't been in these books for so long because, you know, <laughs> I, I just haven't been so, but I'll 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 go into them and I'll and I'll get back to you on what I think, you know, some of the best pruning books. But they're all pretty good. I mean, if they're being published, you know, they're not. Generally speaking, they're not directing you the wrong way. And you know, also look for books that are published by, um, you know, college educators or uh, you know uh, people who are, uh, uh, who are known or or who are very you know one of the tops in their field. But um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll I'll get back to you on some. Well, you mentioned think, you uh, mentioned
0: maybe. earlier that uh, people can contact you at nativelandscaping.net, and I hope the listener uh, will get in touch with you there. Okay, let's take another yeah. call. B A I, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Are you talking to me? I am talking to you.
4: Wonderful! Oh my God, I'm talking to the great Leonard Lopez. Okay. Um, Thank you for the show, Leonard and Pete. This is great. Uh, the question I have, my wife and I uh, bought a 28-acre farm uh, in the Ooh. Hudson Valley about 18 months ago. And we are interested in, I have a, several questions. We're interested in growing uh, mushrooms. Um, and so we've been taking some uh, courses with the Cornell uh, Farm Cooperative and also some workshops over at Soulfire Fire Farms so we can get educated because uh, we live in Brooklyn. Um, so the question I have is, uh, what do you recommend for growing um, uh, shiitake mushrooms? Two, we have a raised bed garden on the farm that was, were, the previous owner was growing uh, Swiss chard. And so we're looking to grow something else besides Swiss chard, uh, or in addition to Swiss chard, and I was just wondering what your recommendation was. Third question is, they had horses on the farm prior, so there's a large uh, area where there's horse manure that uh, pretty much down, you know, a, a distance from the barn, and I was wondering, um, it's just, you know, it's been laying out in the open, um, and I was just wondering what useful purpose that could serve uh, last thing is that we have a stream and a pond, so we've got plenty of irrigation.
1: Pete? Oh, okay, so we're, we're, there's a lot of areas to cover here. Let's start with the mushrooms. We wanted to grow the mushrooms, and you've, you've been to classes on how to grow mushrooms, and you're probably aware of the fact that a lot of these mushrooms like it very dark, dank, and they like a lot of organic uh, uh soils and that's the best way to grow mushrooms now I have never grown mushrooms commercially, so I am not an expert at this, but I've seen a couple of uh mushroom farms so um is that what they're telling you as far as mushrooms concerned you don't need a lot of you don't need a lot of area to grow mushrooms. Are you going to do this commercially or is this just a hobby
4: well we're looking at both so you know, okay. i will tell i mean um we're city folks, but uh we're planning on, you know, uh, getting, you know, doing things out of our comfort zone. So
0: we'll see. Well, I'd imagine that mushrooms like manure. Right. And,
1: and, and if I were you, I'd contact mushroom farms and explain, you know, a lot of these guys are, you know, are willing to open up, you know, their knowledge. You know, some of these mushroom farms have been in, in, in business for generations and, you know, they'll tell you what you should do and how it works. Um, so I would reach out to them first because they've been doing it. And, you know, like I said, a lot of these mushroom farmers, uh, these farms get passed down from generation to generation. Now, you said you had a 25-acre farm. Is it wooded or is it a meadow?
4: It's, it's There's a meadow and there's a wooded area as well. I see.
1: <clears throat> well, if it were me and I wanted to grow, we'll start with commercially. I would probably turn the meadows or the open areas and, and the exposed areas into like an orchard. And, you know, in and in the Hudson Valley was so very lucky. You can grow just about anything here from an orchard standpoint. You know, you can, uh, apples do very well here, pears, peaches, uh, uh, and, and you know, and, and then a lot of blueberries too. And if you want to get into grapes, you know, if you want to create like a sustainable uh, uh permaculture farm you know our, we have a great climate uh for for all this stuff um and that manure that you were talking about that's in a pile uh on the back side of the property you know that's what you use for fertilizer and, or for soil amendments you know whatever you bring into the property and plant use that manure because it's probably aged and it's not so hot anymore um, i would use that manure everywhere you know in the vegetable garden and the fruit garden uh, everywhere you're going to plant uh, stuff, um, you know, it, it, it's going to do nothing but help. And it will save you a lot of money on fertilizer and
0: soil amendments. Okay. Thank you for your call. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Pete Morosky, a nurseryman and environmentalist and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center on Route 22 in Pauling, New York. And we're taking your calls at 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Uh,
5: Can you hear me okay?
0: We hear you fine.
5: Okay. I'm calling from good old Fishkill, New York. My name is Frank. And what I wanted to mention, a neat method of doing gardening, and that's using bales of straw. It's called Straw Bale Garden. And, uh, and, and I've been advocating it around here in Dutchess County and different people that I know, and it works really well. And uh, the neat thing is, uh, everything grows, and you can put the bale on a rooftop, or you can put it on your back deck, and uh, and 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 you can grow all kinds of stuff. So if you go on uh, on the internet, on YouTube, and look at the straw bale garden, it's really a neat uh, technique for uh, growing in. Uh, in various circumstances where you may not have soil it would you could put the bale on asphalt and it'll and you can grow and it works really well how about that
1: hey frank i have a question for you on this hay bale gardening um did sure you no, have straw you bale straw bale right um, yeah, yeah. Have only, you no, it doesn't that, work
5: with hay because there's seeds in hay and you get weeds
1: i see okay that's what i was going to yes it's all straw bale garden okay yeah, with no straw weed bale seeds.
5: garden only yeah you don't use hey you 've got to use straw, or you can use other material they uh, this guy took this technique over to Cambodia and they grow rice there. Well, they get these after the rice is harvested. they have these stalks, and what they did is they they, um, they made the stalks into what looks like bales of of uh, straw and uh, and then they now are growing tomatoes over in Cambodia. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I've heard about uh, straw bale gardening. I've never seen it used, but I've heard about it, uh, and, and I and that's why I asked you the question. I didn't. I, I guess it's the straw bales and not the hay bales, so you don't get the weed seed germination that works the best. And then these bales, they're only good obviously for one season, right, Frank? No,
5: no, no. They they, they uh, you can they they last. They they can last multiple seasons, and and essentially. Um, uh, yeah, they they, they they do multiple seasons. I've got one on my back deck that's probably in its fourth year right now. Wow,
0: well, thank that's you. interesting. Well, I'm going to bail out uh, of this I, call. What
5: I like to do is I build a, I take some uh, some uh, uh, chicken wire and I build a basically a box around a bale of straw, <clears throat> and that way uh, when they you know after it, it doesn't really come apart, the bale stays together surprisingly. Uh, because of all the roots and everything in it. So I was concerned, you know, I built the, the box around it because I was concerned about the bale coming apart, but it doesn't. So you just plant more stuff the next year, and I throw some compost on top, and, uh, you know, and so it all kind of mixes together, and, and sometimes I never know what I'm going to get the next year. I mean, I'll have, I'll have uh, multiple vegetables coming out of that one bale.
0: Sounds good, Frank. Thanks for calling. Thank, from thank you for calling. In, in the little time we have left, I want to talk about something different. Um, this year's Rockefeller Center Christmas tree was an 82-foot-tall Norwegian spruce. And you, um, on on the show, well, you've been a guest for quite a few years now, have been advocating only using native plants. Could they have used a native tree instead? Is there something comparable?
1: Well, there is, uh, Leonard. And, um, you know, I've done a little research on the the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and the history of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Um, It was in 1931 that the first Rockefeller Christmas tree during the Depression was put up. And guess what? It was a 20-foot balsam fir, which was a native tree. Mm -hmm. So over the years, the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree has had uh, some balsam fir, and some white spruce um, in 1936 they built the skating rink around uh, the christmas tree and and you know some another interesting things is, is, is in 1942 they they put up three christmas trees each decorated with the color of the american flag and of course in 44 45 the tree went dark uh, in 1951 nbc television started uh televising the lighting of the christmas tree um, and in 1999, the tallest Christmas tree ever that ever was was a 100-foot Norway spruce. In 2007, the tree went green with energy-efficient LED lights. But out of all those years, uh, you know, only like a handful of times has Rockefeller Center used a native Christmas tree. And I just thought, you know, from an ecological standpoint, what a great opportunity. To to push and introduce native trees here at Rockefeller Center to push this whole native plant concept to make everybody aware of how important native plants are in our natural world that you know and everybody watches the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree that if somehow we could convince or promote more you know either the white spruce the balsam fir the Fraser fir you know there's, there's, you know there's a lot of different native evergreens that we could use at Rockefeller Center. To promote our wonderful native trees that are indigenous here in New York, I think would be would go a long way in teaching people, you know, the right plant in the right location.
0: What about the Christmas trees that people buy um, before the holiday? Are they generally native trees?
1: Uh, some are. Some aren't. <clears throat> you know, the, there's, the, there's, the, there's the balsam. There's the fraser. There's the concolor, which is a West Coast tree um they, you know i would say it's about 50 50 but the native uh evergreens are uh or the christmas trees are the Fraser and the balsam and the reason why they're uh very popular is because they're so fragrant and that they, they have good needle retention but you know hey the con, the, the con color is beautiful i mean it it's a Western fir. It's kind of greenish in color. And when you snap the branches, it smells like citrus. So that's another tree, too.
0: And you've that, been encouraging people to buy live trees, which would mean that they still have them in, in on their property or in their homes, right?
1: Well, that's what we have did this year. We got away from cut trees and we sold live trees. And what we do is, we you know, the, the customer comes in, they buy the tree, we deliver it, we set it up in the house, you know, and it can only stay inside for five days. And after we take it out of the house, we plant it in the yard, um, and that all happens within a week because you don't want to fake the tree to think it's springtime in your living room because when you put it outside, uh, it's going to have a tough time adjusting back to winter. So it's a short stint in the house and then back back in the yard, and that seems to be uh, a very popular thing to do these days.
0: And – what about the trees that have died? Uh, what, what's your thinking about how to deal with them? Um,
1: well, we usually, you know, I'll work with customers if the tree didn't work. If we, You know, we had a tough winter, and, you know, as soon as we planted it outside, it went down to 10 below zero. I'll, I'll work with them and get them another tree. Hmm. It might not be as big as that one, but, you know. It, it, but I'm talking about getting
0: rid of the tree, Um are there things that we can do to help the environment when we get rid of the tree oh the cut tree yeah
1: yeah you can stick it out in the woods and um you know the birds will use it as cover uh in the winter time um yeah it's you know it's, you know set set it out in the woods and and and, and a lot of the, the bird you know we get every once in a while we get a bad storm up here you see more even less but that and 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 the uh you know the birds that stay in the winter like the cardinals and 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 the blue and the blue jays and a lot of those other birds that spend spend the winter up here we get a bad storm they'll get right into the center of that old christmas tree and 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 that could save their life from from wind and 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 cold
0: i gotta leave it there we've run out of time but uh Again, Pete Morosky is a nurseryman and environmentalist, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center on Route 22 in Pauling, New York, in Dutchess County. And you can contact him when he's not on the air at www.nativelandscaping.net. Thank you so much for being on our show again today.
1: Thank you, Leonard. It was
0: a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our over 700 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can check us out on uh, Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLope at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI. Uh, This station has uh, gone through some rough times recently, um, paying for our tower and our rents and our studio space, and we need all of our listeners to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give2wbai.org to or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and the number 2wbai.org or 2 Oh, nine, oh, uh, another great way to support WBAI throughout the year is to become a sustaining member uh, for ten dollars, fifteen dollars, twenty, whatever level you com- you feel comfortable with, uh, and we-, we will call you a BAI buddy, uh, and allows us to plan for the future. So no matter why. Uh, whatever way you choose, please make that call now. Again, the number, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large with a tax-deductible contribution, thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Michael P. Jeffries will be here to discuss his new book, Black and Queer on Campus. We'll see you then.